Uh, so let's turn to Genesis chapter two and I'll read the uh, most of the chapter for us as we begin to look into this and uh, complete our consideration of this tonight. So Luke, excuse me, Genesis chapter two, uh, beginning at verse four through the end of the chapter, hear now God's uh, holy word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in, in the east, and there he put the man he had formed And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. So we see that this creation account is quite different from that of Genesis 1. So if we look at Genesis 1 as the chronology, then Genesis 2 is something else. It's um, a poetic account of the creation with the focus being on the creation of man. The order is just totally different. Uh, He creates the earth uh, and no bushes come up. He 
has the ground and out of the ground, then he forms the man and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Then he plants a garden for him to, to, to work in and uh, finds that there's no helper fit for him. And then he creates all the animals. And it's interesting that even the method of creation is different. You know, in Genesis 1, God speaks and it is immediately created. Here, the things come up from the ground. So there's a different process even that Genesis 2 is recording for us. Uh, and so he creates, God creates all the animals and brings them to man to name and then uh, finds that not one of those are really a suitable helper. So he creates, puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib, uh, creates a woman to be his helpmate and uh, brings them together uh, in marriage. <clears throat> so we have this uh, wonderful account of creation. And again, the, the high point is God creating, creating Adam. That's kind of the focal point of this account of creation. And it grows out of the, the statement in the chapter one that God took counsel together and said, let us create man in our image. And so the dignity and the glory of, of man and his creation is really uh, what is of significant value and purpose. And we see even in the passages that will counter coming um, all that that means, the honor of man as the pinnacle of God's creation and as such a significant uh, part of that. Well, before, uh, I w what I want to get into tonight is the uh, covenant life, the covenant of creation or the covenant of works in which, into which God put, brought man, which is very significant, has implications for us as well. Uh, before I get into my survey of that, I wanted to just give you a few thoughts from this book by William Van Gemeren on uh, the, called The Progress of Redemption, where he, he talks about, uh, he summarizes a few things from this chapter from his own point of view of these uh, two creation accounts that uh, draw, he draws attention to these, uh, I think, four things. <clears throat> The first is that uh, the covenant name Yahweh takes precedence over the title Elohim. And we talked about that difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, the focus is on Elohim, the glory of God, the creator. Here, this chapter, the emphasis is on Yahweh. It's Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And it focuses on the, the relationship that God is going to establish between uh, himself and Adam and Eve. So that's, that's a significant development. The second thing he draws is the emphasis on, in chapter 2 on the garden instead of the earth. Uh, so in the first chapter, there's just the creation of the earth and then the creation of the plants and uh, all that are part of it. Here in this chapter... Not much focus is on that at all. What the focus is is on the garden in which uh, God will put Adam and Eve. And it's uh, a, a paradise. Um, and the fact of paradise, he 
he mentions and brings out that the paradise here is going to be lost. And the paradise regained through Christ is going to be far uh, infinitely greater than this beautiful paradise. Third thing is, it's uh, through God's word that he gives man permission to eat. Uh, it's, um, the prohibition is just focused on one particular tree, and, uh, but he basically commands him to eat. Uh, and um, it's Van Gimmeren's point of view that he's not supposed to eat of the tree of life either. I'm going to differ with him a little bit on that particular point. But you have those two trees, but otherwise he's commanded to eat from all the trees. God's providing for him. The fourth thing he says is the emphasis in Genesis 2 of the family unit. And we'll definitely focus on that. So to summarize it, he says, the central thrust of Genesis 2 is to show God's special interest in humankind. By the unique formation of the first man, by his placing him in the garden, uh, by the commandment to eat, and by the special act of forming the woman as a unique creature complementary to man. And uh, the repeated use of the word Yahweh. Well, what I want to draw your attention to here in uh, kind of building or following in a similar vein are the different elements of the covenant life that are going to be part of this. There are uh, six uh, aspects or maybe let me maybe a few more than that um, uh, elements of covenant life. But I want to talk in general about uh, the covenant. In Genesis 1, we see God creating the earth as a kingdom in which man would be placed to rule and to reign in God's stead. In this particular chapter, Genesis 2, what we're seeing is God putting man in a special covenant relationship with him. And while the word covenant is not used in this chapter, and not really until Genesis 6, that's the first occasion where the word covenant is used, Uh, The whole concept and idea of the covenant and the elements of a covenant relationship are woven really throughout this whole section. It's a very, very important part of it. God did not create men to be robots. Uh, He did not create man because he was lonely. But he, in his sovereignty and wisdom and love, created man to be in a relationship with him, a bond, um, a way that man could come to know him, to know God. And um, so take your hymnals and turn to page 923, the first paragraph of the chapter on on the covenant is very helpful, I think, in understanding um, why God acts in this way. So 923, it's chapter 7, section 1. 
And so it's uh, there at the bottom of page 923. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. You can define the, name, the word covenant in a variety of ways, but uh, my favorite definition of the covenant is a, that it's a relationship of friendship. God is the friend sovereign. You and I are the friend servants. And it's a bond and it's a relationship. <clears throat> and as the confession says, we could have no fruition of our knowledge or relationship with God, except that he condescends to enter into a relationship with us, which he expresses by way of covenant. It's, that was the focus of his creation of man, is to bring man into this bond, in this relationship. God initiates it, but he creates man to know him. He didn't need to create man for his own glory, for his own benefit. <clears throat> he created man for our benefit. And he wants us to experience that benefit by way of this relationship. And there are a number of different elements of covenant life that you see in this covenant in general is this bond, this relationship between God and us. And within a covenant relationship, we define it in the children's catechism. What is a covenant? It's an agreement between two or more persons. We think of the legal relationships. You and I make covenants all the time. We have a bond. We have agreements. And when we make a covenant, you agree to something and I agree to something and we sign on the dotted line. It's different with God. He's the one that creates the covenant. He establishes it. He sets the boundaries for himself and for us and the obligations. And he defines the relationship, but it's so that we might have blessedness, fruition from the blessedness that we come to know in him. So let's look at several different elements. The first element is that of the general task of dominion. <clears throat> and so if you turn back to chapter 1, verse 28, uh, we, we find in that verse, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it <clears throat> and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what we sometimes refer to as the cultural mandate. God placed us in this world so that we might govern it and rule over it in his stead, for his sake, for his glory. So he gives us that responsibility and that command has not been abrogated even though the fall has taken place. You and I still have an obligation of stewardship in this world to rule over it. Um, You know, the 
um, the unbelievers have Earth Day in April and um, it doesn't belong to them. And they don't do it right anyway uh, because they worship the earth. The earth is not to be worshiped. Earth Day is our day because we know how to do it right because we know that this, this world is a stewardship that we, we've been given. We care for it, we use it, uh, and it's our, we, we understand our responsibility. And that's part of, we, as we are created in the image of God, <clears throat> we're given that mandate, we're given that responsibility to care for the world that God has given to us. So we have that general task of dominion, but we have uh, growing out of that, secondly, the idea of labor or work. I mentioned that last time we were looking at this. Work is not a, the curse. Uh, work is not a curse. Work is part of our covenant uh, relationship with God in our actions. And so we see that in chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to, it to rain on the land, and there was no, no man to work, to work the ground. Uh, God had put, he created Adam to work the ground. Uh, in verse 15, 2 for 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, that doesn't mean in our day everybody has to be a gardener. But the the point is, you and I are given responsibilities in this world to work and to to tend what God has given to us. Some of us have different careers, different responsibilities, different roles. I mean, you might have a garden, but it's not not specifically only that you have, have to be a gardener. It's that you have a responsibility. You have a work in this world. Verses uh, 19 and 20 also say this is a part of his responsibility. Out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. So work Labor is not the curse. And because of man's disobedience, labor became a curse, became hard. Now we had to labor by the sweat of our brow. Now the earth would not give its produce to us willingly. And so it becomes difficult, but it's not work. Work is a part of our covenant life with God. A third element that's very prominent, particularly in this chapter, even as Dr. Van Gimmeren said, is <clears throat> marriage. Marriage is part of covenant life. Uh, you have in, in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a him a helper fit for him. And God then made all the animals and none of them were a helper fit for him. So then in verse 22, the, uh, that God took a rib from Adam and the rib that the Lord God had taken, verse 22, from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Uh, 
So God is the first um, person to arrange a marriage. Uh, there was Adam. He needed an appropriate helper, uh, the woman that who he created, and he brings them together. Uh, so marriage is God's idea. It's not man's idea. Uh, we like to think it's our idea, maybe, and we get romantic feelings and some of those things that are appropriate in their proper place. But it's God's design. So we ought to conduct our marriages according to God's design. He's the one <clears throat> that created, and it's part of our covenant life. Um, and uh, could we argue, what, had sin not occurred, there would have been a marriage for everyone, possibly. Uh, we certainly don't want to say that uh, people that remain single or are not married or somehow in sin. They are not. Uh, we, uh, each of us in our various places, either as married or unmarried, are called to live in a faithful life uh, to the glory of God. And each richly wonderful opportunities, but as part of, in general, the covenant life as God created in the garden, <clears throat> it's... Um, uh, it's God's creation of marriage. And because he created it, uh, every misuse of marriage, every violation of a man and a woman in one relationship is a violation of the created order. And men, might, men, uh, men and women might try to explain it away and try to deny that but the created order is one man, one woman together in a marriage relationship for life. That's his design. That's the way he planned it. And any departure from that is a violation of his created order. And whether men want to accept that or not. <clears throat> um, Along with marriage is the building of a family. Back in, in chapter 1, verse 28, God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So having children is a part of the marriage uh, relationship, part of the building a family, uh, having covenant children who <clears throat> can learn to... Um, serve the Lord and honor him and can be trained in obedience to the Lord and to love the Lord as much as we can as parents. Of course, God has to be the one working in their hearts. But the, the idea of the family is also a part of the covenant life. And, um, you know, we pray for the ladies expecting children and and uh, different, each, each family has their own accountability before the Lord regarding that. But it's a part of this covenant life. Is God wants uh, work, marriage, family, all to be a part of the life, covenant life that we have with the Lord and seeing him at work in our lives. <clears throat> a fifth thing that's very important is worship. Uh, we see that at the very beginning of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work 
that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because, in it, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. <clears throat> God created the Sabbath day. It's not a, uh, not a legal ordinance later on. It's a creation ordinance that God created for our good, uh, for us, to benefit us. And it's very important for us to see uh, that, that it's a part of what God has done for us. There's three things that are said in that section that are important about the day. <clears throat> that one is God rested. Well, that doesn't mean God was tired. You and I need physical rest. And uh, the Sunday afternoon nap is not a violation of God's order in any way. Sometimes we need that. We need that break physically from the labor. We labor six days and on the seventh day we rest. So it's not that physical rest is absent, but we need to note the other two things. He rested on the seventh day. He blessed it and he hallowed it. He made it holy. And it helps us appreciate the reality that um, this day is set apart for us to experience not only physical benefit, but spiritual benefit. Uh, That you and I are to rest in God's work. You and I are to be blessed by God's work. And you and I are to sanctify the day because of God's work. And so those things help us to appreciate how we can use the day and how we can benefit from the day. Uh, Because that day of rest uh, isn't an end in and of itself. It's to make us find our rest in God and look forward ultimately because of sin to the rest that we'll have forever. And it's very interesting when you study the Ten Commandments and know the fourth command. The fourth command is keep the Sabbath day. And there there are two occurrences of the Ten Commandments. You you know this well. One is in Exodus 20 and the other is in Deuteronomy 5. And... uh, they're all, they're pretty much the same. Although those 10 commandments are pretty much the same in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, 5, except for the Sabbath day. Because in Exodus 20, it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy because in six, because in six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. So the first giving of the law is that we the, we honor the Sabbath day because of God's creation order. We labor six days and we enter God's rest on the seventh day, physically and spiritually. But it's not that, but that's not the case in Deuteronomy 5. In Deuteronomy 5, it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy because the Lord redeemed you from the land of Egypt. So the first command to, to 
remember the Sabbath day is a creation, remind us of creation, how God created this world, how he created our lives and the order for our lives. The second command to remember the Sabbath day is you need to remember that God redeemed you and he saved you. And that makes your Sabbath day so much more rich and meaningful because you remember how he delivered you from bondage. The bondage to sin, the bondage uh, to decay, all those things that God delivered you. So the fourth commandment, Hebrews 4, you can go read uh, later, is uh, pointing us to that the people of Israel when they entered the land of promise, did not enter their rest. Joshua was not, the Old Testament Joshua was not able to give them their rest. But the other Joshua, Jesus, is able to enter, help us enter into our rest. And uh, we know that in the New Covenant, the New Testament, we worship on the first day of the week. And uh, in the Old Testament, they worshiped on the the um, last day of the week. <clears throat> and there's tons of debates among people about this, whether that's right or wrong or this, that, and the other thing. But I find it very significant for the change. Of course, we know we changed it because Jesus rose on the first day of the week and the early church began then meeting on the first day of the week uh, because of his resurrection. But if we think it, we can think of it this way. In the Old Testament, the people of God work, 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 and then they were able to enter the rest. The rest came at the end. But you and I, because of the finished work of Christ, we rest, we enter our rest first. And then out of the treasure of that rest, then we serve the Lord. Then we work. For him. So to me, it transforms our whole viewpoint of our, our, the order of our life. We're saved, and then we don't work to become saved, to enter the rest. We're saved, and then out of the joy of that salvation, then we serve. Then we work. And so we begin in Christ and live our life for the glory of God because of that. And then one other thing about um, covenant life is there are commands and laws. In every every covenant relationship, there there are obligations. God will often obligate himself to certain things, but he obligates us to certain things. Like the covenant with Abraham, we're going to read him say, walk before me and be blameless. That was Abraham's responsibility. And then God promised that he would be a God to Abraham and his descendants after him. So here we have in this particular covenant, the covenant of works or the covenant of creation, we have the focal point of the command, I mean, you could say in general his command, be fruitful and multiply, uh, have dominion over the earth, 
but there's a particular focal point of the command in the trees. Uh, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the command, the prohibition, everything else was positive. Eat whatever you want. The prohibition was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so there was a command of responsibility and there are sanctions, positive sanctions and negative sanctions. If we do what God told us to do, we will live. If we do what he told us not to do, we will die. And that's why, in my opinion, I think they did have access to the tree of life prior to the fall. In In that tree was the hope of life. But in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was the prohibition and the warning of death. And the choice for Adam and Eve was, would they live in this covenant relationship with God? Would they honor him? Would they trust him? Another element of covenant life is, and it relates to these two trees, is in every covenant relationship, there are sacraments. Symbols of the richness of that covenant life. And in the, the focal point in this particular covenant relationship here in the garden, the covenant of creation, the two sacraments are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they pictured the life relationship, the covenant relationship they had with God and their the, the tree of life was the, 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 phys, the physical reminder of God's everlasting love that they could enjoy forever. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the sacrament to remind them that there are commands that God puts on us to follow, that if we fail to keep those commands, uh, there are going to be terrible results. And as we'll learn in the next chapter, Adam and Eve obviously sinned against God and they were sent away from the tree of life. But it was the hope of God's people from that moment to the end of time that they would once again be allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the thread of the gospel hope from the beginning to the end. And... Let me just read you these verses. You can look them up later. Uh, Where we get the kind of the concluding focal point of this is several verses in Revelation. So Revelation 2, 7 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God we will get the opportunity to eat once again from that tree. And then describing the new Jerusalem, Revelation 22, 2, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And a little later in chapter 22, 22, 14, 
Blessed are those who wash their robes, that's in the blood of the lamb, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And so the hope, once the fall came and we were banned from the tree of life, the hope of the people of God, the gospel hope woven throughout the rest of the Bible, uh, accomplished in, in the work of Christ, is that we could eat of that tree once again. And in the new Jerusalem, the tree is there planted. And those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb uh, are able to eat from that tree. And that's our hope. The fall took us away from that. But God in his work of redemption through his son who he promised to send in Genesis 3, gives us access to that, um, to that tree once again. So Adam and Eve had a choice, and sadly, even though they had all the help to make the right choice, they made the wrong choice, and uh, the covenant was broken. But I don't want to just, I don't want to end completely on that note. Because the question comes to us, what hope do we have as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve? That we will be delivered from all this. How can we ever keep the covenant? Well, the answer is, there's only one covenant keeper. And it's in him that we have hope. Is Jesus. He's the covenant keeper. He's the only covenant keeper. We're all, all of us here are covenant breakers. That original covenant still stands over us. We still are obligated to that. And we're all breaking it all the time. <clears throat> and we, can't, we, we have no hope to become covenant keepers except in Christ that he is our covenant keeper. And we become covenant keepers in him. Not for anything we've done, but for what he's done. He makes you a covenant keeper. He takes away the curses of the covenant that are on you. And he gives his covenant keeping righteousness to you. And that's your hope. And that's your help. And you're living in covenant with God in your life today. And so may you focus on your covenant keeper and find your help in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the, uh, the blessed truth of your word. Thank you for the richness of the covenant life that we have with you and in, in so many regards, we thank you so much for your son who kept the covenant and took upon himself the curses of the covenant so that we might be delivered and we might have hope and that we might have help to live day by day in faithfulness to you and love for you in, um, in, the, in the lives that you give us here. May we serve you out of the strength uh, and hope that you give us through your son, 
Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.